Well, I've been reminded, especially in this service, when we have so many guests and, uh, and people who have not been here before, that periodically I need to introduce myself as well when we get up on stage, like Paul does every week. And so um, I want to introduce myself. I'm Ginger Legg's husband. Um, and so uh, if you've met her, you're, you're ahead of the game for sure. Um, there was a point at which we realized that uh, it was, there was a very high correlation between me, people who met her and people who came back for a second and third Sunday. Um, it's a really high correlation there. Uh, if you haven't met uh, Ginger, she's awesome and super cool. So uh, you need to meet her for sure. Um, as a, <laughs> that's right. That's good. All right. So uh, the last few weeks, oh, I also want to make a quick comment. If you happen to be a daughter um, who does not have a dad handy, uh, if for any reason you don't have a dad handy, but you want to come to the daddy-daughter event, uh, we, we will find a stand-in dad for you for sure. So you just let us know at the church office that you want to come and, uh, and you want to be a part of that event, and you just let any of us know, and, uh, and we, will, we will assign a dad. Um, and uh, who knows, maybe an improvement. I mean, maybe dad's just out of town or something like you. Take a shot, you know what I'm saying? So anyway, all right. Um, uh, okay, so over the last few weeks, speaking of dads, we have met Elkanah and his two wives, uh, Hannah and Penina. And if, uh, if, you're, if this is your first time to be a part of this conversation, you're like, wait, two wives? Listen, you're going to have to go back and listen to the other sermons. I can't, I can't do it every week. So um, go back and check those out. You want to keep up. Um, Hannah has no children, and Penina does. And Penina seems to have very little love from her husband, but Hannah does. Not surprisingly, if you've ever met any humans, Penina is hurt and resentful and angry and abusive with her words to Hannah. Surprisingly, if you've met any humans, Hannah does not seem to be the same way. Hannah does not seem to be resentful. She doesn't even seem to be resentful towards her husband, much less Penina. She doesn't even seem to be resentful towards God. And to consider for a minute how exceptional this is, how natural it is for us as humans to let our hatred and resentment overflow into the lives of those around us. Um, this is a, a common theme that we see in the atheist movement, especially the neo-atheist movement, um, which is largely about emotion and not so much about reason. Um, but as very often as people are deconstructing their faith, very often the reason they're deconstructing their faith comes down to essentially this sentence, there is no God and I am very angry with Him. Or there is no God and I'm really mad about how He's doing things or how He's done things. There is no God and I deeply disagree with His moral decision making. That that's, essentially that's the pattern that we run into. We see that, and by the way, the emotion of that is something that every single God-fearer, Christ follower feels. Every single one of us. Here's the truth. God will not let us down. Here's our experience. I am regularly disappointed in God. That's a common feeling for us. I am disappointed when God doesn't do things the way, when he doesn't play the game according to my family rules. When he doesn't do the things that I want him to do, I am disappointed. I am angry. And if I'm not careful, I can even become bitter and resentful, and, and let that pour out not only into the lives of other people, but very often against myself. That that resentment gets turned inward, and my self-hatred begins to turn inward. And maybe, maybe a little bit of where Hannah is is that, 
but she certainly doesn't seem to have any resentment or anger towards anybody else. Um, very often we run into that. I am angry and resentful in general, and everyone around me gets to feel it, especially those who don't walk on eggshells around me. Um, if we're in relationships like that, those aren't healthy. We need to figure out how to get help with that. Once again, we see that. To the almighty creator of heaven and earth, that is where Hannah goes. When she runs into this trouble, when she feels the pain, when she sees what, that things aren't going the way she wants them to go, she fundamentally looks to God to solve it. That doesn't mean she does look to others as well, but fundamentally she looks to God to solve it. Now, spoiler alert, this deep longing she has to have a child, to have a son, she's going to have one. And he's going to be so significant that they're going to name two books in the Bible after him, um, like one of the ones we're in right now. However, we're going to notice something today that may be the very hardest thing for most of us, is that Hannah is going to step into a position of worship before she knows what God has done, before she knows whether God is going to give her what she wants. And that does not fit with our flesh well at all. She seems to accept something on faith. Now, this is almost tough for me to talk about because I'm a firm believer that Christianity is a rational belief system. It is a reasonable faith. We have reason to trust the God who we serve. We have reason to believe that He knows best for us even when we don't experience it, when we don't feel it. And we run into this all the time. And when we're running through, reading through Scripture, as you're going to see before we're done, this is a core, this idea of, the, of faith being, I don't know what God will do, is actually a core of faith. Um, before she knows what God will do, she is able, seems able to take it. Not that God is going to give her a child, but I believe she reached the place where she could accept that the presence or absence of a child is an expression of God's love for her. And that's hard for us. It's hard for us to accept that when God isn't giving us what we desperately and deeply want, that that may be a sign of his love from his hands. She can look forward in hope and in joy. We see her worship before she knows what God is going to do. This actually is a big part of what worship is, whether we know it or not. Um, years ago, John Redfern was teaching through worship, and he periodically teaches uh, seminars and Bible studies and things through the concept of worship. I highly recommend. If you want, the de if you want to understand worship at a whole new level, uh, John can help you understand that. One of the things he discovered was that the root word for worship involves a lot of different... It's a beautiful word that tells a story. Um, one of the roots that's down in there is actually the root for dog and the root for hand. And many people think that the story that's being told with that word is the idea that we come to God like a dog looking to see what is in his hands. Now, yes, worship is partially about coming and proclaiming what he is worth, proclaiming his worthiness. Absolutely, that's a part of what worship is. However, we also have to keep in mind that God doesn't need us to do that. He does not doubt he does not need us to comfort him or to, to affirm him in the fact that he is worthy. He knows he is. He wants us to affirm that, to join him in that because it is right and good to do so. It's important, though, to remember that part of coming to worship is also that when we come to worship him, whether it's in a community like this or in a community like a small group or our family or whether you're standing alone on the top of a mountain or walking down the road in worship, worship is about coming to him to seeing what do you have for me today? What do you have for me today? 
See, and here's an interesting application for the way this plays out. So we actually, years ago, when I had a dog that, that was good at this, um, uh, Pike and I were preaching on this, and I actually had someone bring Molly, uh, our, our black lab, to the back of the room. Some of you may remember this. And I stepped down, and all I did was stand like this. And they let Molly go, and Molly charged down the aisle, not paying attention to anybody else here, and came as she always did and put her nose in my left hand and then her nose in my right hand to see if I had anything for her in my hands. This is a picture. What do you, what do you got for me today? I, I, listen, you're the master. I'm just the follower. I'm the servant. I'm the pet in this situation. I'm the dog in this analogy, and I'm coming to see what you have for me because I've learned to believe that what you have for me is good. I've seen that. I have, she has good reason. She had good reason to believe that what was in my hand was good. Now, here's what's fascinating in application. I now have a dog that about once a month I have to tackle and hold in place and pry her jaws open and stick a pill on the back of her tongue and clamp her jaws shut and hold her there until she can't breathe until, and, and she panics and swallows the pill. This is the Christian life for many of you. Right there. <laughs> that was it. Is it, it is, that's a, Molly was a great picture of what is supposed to happen, though, which is I could literally call Molly to me. I'd say, Molly, come sit, and she would sit, and I would hand her the pill in my hand like this, no peanut butter. I didn't have to pretty it up, nothing, because Molly knew that what came from my hand was good. And so she took it, and she would eat it, and she would get this weird look on her face like, I didn't, I didn't feel good. <laughs> I didn't like that very much. But here's what's funny. She would then assume... My experience was that wasn't good, but it came from your hand. I must be the one who's mistaken. I must not be understanding this. And think about the fact that she's right. That pill keeps her alive. That pill keeps her healthy. She's right. That pill is a good thing. It doesn't taste very good, apparently. It doesn't, it's not very enjoyable, but it was a good thing. But only because she trusted the master who was offering it to her was she able to receive it in joy as a reward. This is a good thing. I came and I sat and I got a reward. It was a pill. It wasn't very yummy. But listen, it came from him. It must be good. I must be the one who misunderstands here. What a great picture of faith and of worship as we learn to understand this idea. And we're going to see that lived out in Hannah in an incredible way. It actually is going to make me very sad next week, probably as we finish talking about Hannah. Hannah only gets about a chapter and a half in the Bible. And I'm so impressed by her as I've gone and continue to go through this. Joy is about borrowing happiness or goodness from the future. We can be in the situation that's really hard, but we can choose to focus on the good things that God has for us in the future and therefore feel now the happiness that we know we will feel later. By the way, worry is the opposite. Worry is to borrow anxiety from the future. You can be in a great situation and yet feel anxiety because you're borrowing that anxiety from something you know may be coming. That's, that's why Jesus tells you, like, that's a, that's a decision. Anxiety, that's going to happen. Worry, you get to have a vote, a vote in that. You get to decide whether you look to the future for what is good, which is why joy is, has a special connection to us as Christians, because I can look forward to a future in 10,000 years from now. I can borrow from the future what God has in store for me 1,000 years or 10,000 years or 100,000 years from now. By the way, hope, hope is the belief that the future does involve good things. That's hope. That there's a goodness there's a happiness. There's a positive thing. The, the, the future holds good things for me. Bad things, hard things, sure. Sometimes pills that I don't want to take, of course. 
but it involves good things that I can look forward to. I can believe and hope that there's going to be good things there. Now, what's wild is, in the midst of understanding that, and that Hannah's going to model that for us, she also models this. Sometimes while we're waiting for the hope to be fulfilled, we weep and we pray. That is also a healthy part of it. 1 Samuel chapter 1, starting in verse 12, as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. Now, there's so many things to unpack in, this one, in these couple little verses here. But I want to start by drawing the picture for you. So we've looked at the tabernacle. You've seen what the tabernacle would have looked like. Imagine Hannah sitting in the kind of courtyard of the tabernacle. And Eli's probably sitting in the gate, sitting right there in the door in a little throne. This is kind of the, the pre-concept of the Greek bema seat, a seat of judgment. And so he's probably sitting, it's probably a throne-like chair. It is not commanded in Scripture that when they built the tabernacle that they put this chair here. The priests apparently just put one there. This is the, this is the high, uh, the priests are very important. They're going to sit there in this chair. So somewhere in the tabernacle, in that courtyard, Hannah has come, and she is, remember, it's not just weeping. She is sobbing. She's hysterical. She is sobbing hysterically before the Lord, crying out in her heart. And she is, she is saying these things, and, but her lips are moving because she's praying from her heart. What a great image for us, a great reminder that that's something that we can do is to cry out from our heart, and God still hears us. Um, there's a lot to understand here. So, but I want you to have a correct picture. So as she's doing that, a very strange thing happens. A guy comes walking up to her to confront her. Now, what would he have looked like? The Jewish high priest, and people pretty much accept that Eli, though it's not absolutely sure, that Eli was serving as the high priest here. A high priest looked a little bit like this. So I want to read to you the description. Um, I've compiled the different biblical accounts that describe what the high priest would have looked like. And you're going to see everything that I'm going to describe verbally. You're going to see on this person's garment. The vestments of the common priest, not the high priest, but the common priest consisted of a white linen tunic, trousers, girdle, and white turban. This was worn by all priests serving in the tabernacle at all times. The high priest shared these garments with the common priests, but had, besides, other vestments and ornaments which proclaimed his office to be of higher importance. These included a plate of pure gold which he wore on his brow and which extended right across his forehead. It was held in place by a thread of blue. On this glittering ornament, the words holiness to the Lord were inscribed. They declared that the wearer was entirely devoted to the servant of God, service of God. The most characteristic garment on the high priest was the ephod, which he wore above his tunic. It was made of a finest texture, not only of blue and crimson fine twined linen, but also with gold threads. It was caught on the shoulders by two onyx stones set in gold. On these onyx stones, the names of the twelve tribes of Israel were engraved, six on each stone on his shoulders. And the high priest wore these stones as stones of remembrance for the children of Israel when he stood before God. Attached to the ephod by two chains of solid gold, resting upon his heart was the breastplate of decision. On the breastplate sparkled twelve precious stones in four equal rows, and in the stones the names of the twelve tribes of Israel were engraved. There the Urim and the Thummim were placed, which the high priest consulted on important matters. 
to complete his attire, the high priest wore between the ephod and a tunic the robe, which was a fine blue wool, which ended in a broad hem with pomegranates of blue, red, and crimson attached. Between these small pomegranates, small golden bells were inserted, the sound of which when Aaron walked into the sanctuary was to impress the mind of the Israelites with deep reverence. The scripture does not say this clearly. According to Jewish history, anytime they entered the tabernacle, they did so with uncovered feet. They were constantly being reminded of their own modesty and humility, even while wearing all this finery. And by the way, this would have been really heavy. The ephod would have been very heavy. It would have been worn as a burden. Even though it's a burden of office, it would have been worn as a burden, a very heavy piece of gold plating. And so he had to be reminded, this is a heavy burden that I'm carrying, and yet in the midst of all this finery, he, was been, he would have been barefoot. Um, going into, they had to wash their feet before entering the tabernacle, and they just would not have put their sandals back on. Any priest allegedly was to be barefoot, to be reminded of their humble status before the Lord. So a man arrayed something like this comes up to her as she is sobbing on the ground, praying to God for a child. I think this would be a very strange encounter, especially when we see Eli's words, which really trouble me. However, I think it's more than this. Because we know later that Eli is described as old and heavy. So heavy later that when he falls over backwards, it's enough to kill him. So looking online, I found an Orthodox priest who is famous for being heavy. Um, this is actually what he's known for. So put a picture of him up. So I want you to picture this body shape, this large a man wearing all of that clothing, confronting this poor woman who is pouring out her soul to the Lord. So as, as many women would attest, men can sometimes intentionally or unintentionally use our bulk to be intimidating. And so you imagine a, a large man like this coming in dressed with all his finery and confronting her and starting the conversation with why are you drunk? Okay, That's how he starts this conversation. Eli assumes that the woman at the tabernacle weeping and not moving her lips is drunk, not praying. This would be very similar to, imagine, if someone came forward up here at the altar call here in a minute at the time of invitation and knelt down and was sobbing and their lips were moving and one of us went up to her and said, why are you drunk? Well, another drunk one showed up for the altar call. <laughs> I, I, I pray that this is a summary of the conversation, that it wasn't this bad. And I don't know who this is a criticism of. Critic Listen, Eli is going to get almost no good press in this entire book, in my opinion. It, there's, there's not much honorable or that you're supposed to respect about him, I think. But does this also imply that drunkenness was so common among the people of Israel that at the tabernacle, that they, they didn't hang out praying all the time at the tabernacle. They hung out drunk all the time at the tabernacle. Was that that common? What does it mean when a person in this condition is probably drunk? What does it mean if the high priest of Israel can't tell the difference between a person praying and a drunk person? I mean, this just shows you how messed up Israel is right now. That this conversation happens, it all shows you the conditions that are there. Listen, alcohol is, of course, amoral. There's no moral significance to alcohol in and of itself. Um, I'm one of those people who thinks that God gives us great natural things that have different effects on our bodies on purpose, as a gift. 
I don't think it's automatically a bad thing that alcohol has a depressant effect on us, that it has a calming effect on us. I don't think that's inherently evil. That being said, what the Bible calls a moral decision is intoxication. And alcohol is something that can intoxicate us, and therefore its usage can have an intoxicating effect, as you all know. Now, you're thinking, I'm at a Baptist church. Um, This already sounds strange coming from a Baptist church to be taught this way. But understand, clearly, biblically, alcohol is in itself amoral. It It does not have moral significance alone. Jesus drinks alcohol. Many people drink. It's commanded to drink alcohol at certain times, like at Passover and stuff like that. Like this is a, this is a given that it's going to be drunk at times. However, overdoing it, abuse of this substance is immoral. And this is apparently a big problem at this time period. It is certainly a big problem in Tyler, Texas. As a therapist, I will tell you, absolutely, this is a big problem in Tyler, Texas, even among the Christian community, among every socioeconomic strata. It's a big problem here. How many people do we know who cannot get through a 24-hour period without the medical comfort of alcohol? They don't know how to handle stress without alcohol. We may all joke, and we may even mean it sometimes in a simple sense, like, man, I could use a drink, right? Meaning either... That's, that's meant to be funny. Or, man, I, just a little bit of taking the edge off would be great here. But how many people, how many of us, when we face a stressor or a challenging time, or just every evening, we can't go without taking the edge off, without something to make us to depress our mood a little bit, to slow us down. When I was on a jury a few years ago, and we sentenced a man to 66 years in prison uh, for sexual assault of a minor. And it took four and a half days of us being in there, nonstop, all day, every day. And we come out of, the, of downtown, and we've all developed this weird version of a friendship in these four and a half days because of the intensity of it and what we've had to do. And we come walking out from downtown, and I'm already about to call Ginger to talk through what happened and, and what we decided. And, and I'm thinking about getting together with some friends and just kind of debriefing, maybe talking to a counselor like, man, I need to talk about the fact that I just put a man in prison probably for the rest of his life. But it became at the expense of what I just heard and all these different things. And I get out and I'm dialing on my phone and one of the people goes, I don't know about the rest of you, but I'm heading over to Rick's. And all the rest of them said, oh yeah, I don't, I don't, I've got to get a drink. Some of them were already talking about like, I'm, I'm going to be drunk by the time I get to bed tonight because I can't imagine what we just did. And I'm thinking these, the other 11 out of 12 had no tools for dealing with the stress they had just faced but to get intoxicated. That's obviously an abuse of a good thing that God has given us. How many aren't joking when they say that? I need a drink. It's not healthy. Now, that being said, what does it mean when your religious leader can't tell the difference between drinking and praying? A drunken woman and a praying woman. And what an arrogant way for him to start the conversation. I mean, the level of arrogance that Eli exhibits here is stunning to me. Again, like I said, I hope it's summarized, because if it's verbatim, what a fail when it came to being a shepherd that Eli was in this moment. Eli said to her, so remember, keep in mind, a woman who is sobbing and hysterical, and he comes up and starts the conversation this way, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. I mean, had he never read what the Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 6? So... Those of you who don't know, like, no, he had not. That was a thousand years later before that was written. But 
He should have. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. The unfortunate Christian reputation for killing our wounded apparently didn't start recently. He comes out of the cage swinging. He's ready to go. And by the way, as bad as he handles this, and I'm going to talk more about this, don't we love these moments when we're on the receiving end? To be judged wrongly, especially by an authority figure? Is this just a great opportunity? Aren't we, aren't we kind of excited for like, wait, we, we're, we're all offended for Hannah? Whoa, hey, what's, hey this, is, this isn't good. You, get, you know what? You need to stand up for your rights. You need to, you need to tell this Eli character what's up. Like, you got to get in his face and just, you need to, come on, girl. You got to, whatever it is that... You, you get this heart in your mind like, wouldn't this be great? This is going to be a great moment. She's going to rake him over the coals. Go get him, Hannah. Joining in his arrogance in this moment, setting to flame her own arrogance and pride, she says this. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord. Dadgummit, Hannah once again spits in our flesh. Just slaps our flesh in the face with her humility. She is totally justified. And she sees no reason to express justification. Her response is one of humility. I think it's beautiful. No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. We've already looked at some of that language, that she is traumatized, she's destroyed. She's overwhelmed. And by the way, she is respectful and gentle instead. She is filled with the grace of a broken heart trying to trust God. I love this about her. I love the way she responds in this moment. I mean, I, I hate that I don't respond to these moments like this. But I love the example of someone like Hannah to respond like this. And I got to say, as a counselor... It does seem to me like the phrase worthless woman jumps to her lips really fast. Like worthless woman. He didn't say worthless woman. She does. I think that was something right on the edge of her brain. She sits in pondering, am I a worthless woman? Um, I got to say, I, should, I feel like I should have caught this um, as a counselor, as a marriage and family counselor. I should have caught this, but I'm going to have to give props to Alistair Begg. Um, I, uh, the Scottish theologian and preacher, I'll tell you, it is great comfort to me. You're going to hear me cite him maybe weekly because he taught through 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. And uh, when you have a trustworthy teacher like that who knows his stuff, he's teaching through the same material. There's probably every week going to be at least something I steal from him because he's that good. And I love listening to him teach. He pointed out that when we talked about last week, how Elkanah had done that, aren't I worth more than 10 sons? And we joked about how men have that habit of doing that, like, hey, you're having a bad emotion. Um, tell you what, why don't you stop having that bad emotion? Is that better? Are you all better now? No more bad emotion? Like, I'll tell you something, and that should fix how you feel, So, because your feelings are something that need to be fixed by me, apparently. And so, hey, just stop feeling bad things, and then we'll all be happy. Um, what strikes me is Alistair Begg points out, I don't think in this moment that Hannah was overly concerned with how Elkanah was feeling. I don't think she was worried about his feeling worthless. That wasn't the concern. She felt worthless. And Alistair Begg points out that if, if Elkanah had been paying more attention, he probably should have said, 
you need to know, Hannah, you are worth more to me than ten sons. That would have been the right way to engage. That was where her fear and her pain was. Now, it turns out even that wouldn't have solved her problem because her fear and her pain wasn't that she wasn't worth enough to Elkanah. I think her main pain and fear was that she was a worthless woman to God. Here she is, the mother in a Levitical family, and she should be giving God offspring to work in his tabernacle, and she has no children, and why is God treating her like a worthless? I think that's what she's wrestling with is those feelings of worthlessness. It was that she was concerned about her worthlessness to God, and keep in mind, remember, spoiler, God is going to give her this child, and much, much more than anything she could ask or imagine, way beyond anything she would know to ask or imagine. But I've got to get back to Eli because um, I'm trying to learn from Eli's mistakes here. Eli's response is that he's going to give her when she says this sweet thing, No, my Lord, I am neither. I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. And he's going to say this. Then Eli answered, Go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. Now, some commentaries praise uh, Eli for this response. The Ellicott commentary, which is one of the ones I really like, says this. Here the old man is quick to see that he had been insulting a blameless woman. So at once he retracts his cruel accusation and silently accuses himself of being too quick and being unjust. And his graceful, courteous words of farewell... He adds to the fatherly wish. He almost promises her that what she wished for so ardently would be hers. But I think they're giving him too much credit. I read the phrase, that Eli had answered, go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him as being Eli's automatic response to everyone who's praying. I read it that way. Now again, maybe I'm putting myself too much onto him. And I don't want to be so harsh on him because I know I get judged by the same standard I used to judge other people, even Eli. And I know that there are plenty of times when I'm rushing around, especially on a Sunday morning, and it sure looks like I don't care very much what's going on in your life. And so I want to be patient with Eli here as he faces this moment. In fact, a few years ago, uh, there was a young man uh, who I disciple, have been discipling for years and years, who, who came to me at, on a Sunday afternoon. We were hanging out, and he goes, by the way... Um, I don't think you meant what you said this morning. I was like, I don't remember what I said this morning. He's like, exactly. He said, well, you walked past me and you was like, he said, hey, good morning, man. How are you doing? And I don't think you really wanted to know how I was doing. My hint was that you kept walking and didn't even slow down. Like, hey, man, how are you doing? And I was gone. Now, I want to be careful again when I'm judging Eli here because I don't want to fall into that same boat. So I told him like, fine, I'll, you know what? I'll stop asking that. Just kidding. That's not the right solution to that. Um, uh, but may, maybe not in that moment. It's not the right time to ask it. And we can all get there. We all have these automatic responses that sometimes we say. Does he even know what her petition is? I mean, here he is saying, whatever it is you're asking for, I hope you get it. This is a woman sobbing in the tabernacle, and he just hopes she gets what she prays for. May the God of Israel grant your petition. This, doesn't, this does not feel to me like Eli stopped her, prayed with her, comforted her, hugged her, or anything else. I know I can be the chief sinner here, but even in my most distracted moment, I would hopefully not dismiss a woman sobbing in our place of worship who told me that she is filled with great pain and grief and has been um, eshpak et e napshi, pouring out her soul. 
I think it's easy for us to be so distracted at times we miss even these key moments. Verse 18, her reply, of course, still is graceful. Let your servant find favor in your eyes. And the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. It's amazing to me. She accepts these words, though they feel weak to me as comfort enough. I have a funny feeling it's because she wasn't praying to Eli in the tabernacle that day. I don't think Eli is the person that she's looking for comfort from. I think she's looking to God. It isn't my Lord from the beginning of 15, but the Lord at the end of 15 that she is praying to. So here she is. She now has a sense of hope for whatever reason. God has heard me. And I know he has good things for me. Does she know it's going to be a son? I think she knows that it may be a son. I think she knows that that may be what God gives her next as a son. But I think she knows that God has heard her and she trusts him to have good things for her. I see this in verse 19. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Notice at this point in verse 19, she is not pregnant. And yet here she is worshiping before the Lord. She is worshiping even before she knows what God is going to do. She's trusting in God to bring good things to her. This is exactly how faith and hope and joy and trust all connect together for all of us. The willingness in the midst of uncertainty, the willingness to accept his word, to accept what he has for us in the midst of uncertainty is the iron core of faith. It is not what so many of us were taught. There used to be a church in town that put up a sign periodically that would say, faith is not knowing God can, it's believing God will. I 100% disagree with that. That is exactly the opposite of what faith is. If that were true, faith, that would be a pagan religion. Listen, when I tell God to do something, boy, he jumps. I say jump and he says how high. That is not the religion you're in, friends. You're serving a God who is God and we aren't. We are the dog in the analogy, not the master in the analogy. We come to him to see what he has for us. Understanding, praying, hoping, trusting that it's something good for us. Hopefully it's even what we want. Hopefully it's a treat, not a heartworm medication. But you know what? We need that too, even when we don't know we need that. God knows what it is that we need in this. When we think about the great stories of faith in the Bible, we see this over and over again. We went through Daniel. One, we learned that it's not three Hebrew children. It's three Hebrew men who face Nebuchadnezzar toe-to-toe. And Nebuchadnezzar demands that they bow to his idol. And they say, listen, we're not going to bow. You can throw us in the fiery furnace, and our God can save us. But whether or not he does, we're not bowing. That's faith. Is God going to save us from your hand? Huh? Sometimes he does that kind of stuff. And sometimes he doesn't. Have there been Christ followers and God followers and God fearers who have died horribly at the hands of tyrants? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Can God save everyone? All of those? Sure. Does he? No. Are we going to be one of the ones he saves? Could be. I know he can, and I trust that he knows whether or not he should. He gets to be God, not me. The same thing is true when we look at so many of these different stories that we run into. In a few weeks, um, we're going to run into the story of Jonathan and his armor bearer. 
And Jonathan, who is a man of faith, unlike his father Saul, who is not very good at that kind of stuff, um, Jonathan is going to go to his, his armor bearer and say, hey, um, man, the Philistines have this stronghold up in the pass here. I think we ought to go see what, see, I think we ought to go up to them because you know what? Who knows? God might deliver them into our hands. That's faith. Who knows? Could God deliver them into our hands? Yes. Will he? I guess we'll see. Think about every major character that you can think of in Scripture who is a model of faith. Gideon? 300? Really, God? You had me divide out my army into two groups. 9,700 and 300. Let me take a wild guess and tell me which of these two groups you're going to send with me into combat. I thought so. But what does he do? Are you going to deliver the Midianites into my hand? You certainly can. You say you're going to. I'll go. Will you? I guess I'll find out. When we start cracking open torches and blowing trumpets, we'll find out then whether or not you're going to deliver the Midianites into our hands. I don't know what he's going to do. You pick them. Mary, the mother of Jesus, let it be whatever my Lord wants. What does God want for me? Who knows? All I know so far is that a sword is going to be driven through my soul. Sure, let's go with that. This is what we see over and over and over again. The entire passage of Hebrews chapter 11 is about this truth. People who did not see the fulfillment of many of the things they trusted God for. Did they see the fulfillment of some of it? Yes. Did they see the fulfillment of all of it? None of them. Not one of them saw it. And yet they trusted the God who they did know who had proven himself for the things they didn't know that they knew they could trust him with. Will God provide? Well, he certainly can. One of the greatest passages in the New Testament is when Jesus is talking to a man who actually says those words. I have come to you because I know you can heal me if you choose to, if you will. It's one of the few times that Jesus marvels at someone's faith. You get it. You get it. I get to be God. You don't. You get to ask for what you want because I love you. You can always ask. And I promise that what I give you in the end will be good. What if it's not what I asked for? Then it will still be good. That's where we are. This is a picture that we're getting this great example of this from Hannah this week. On that note, stand if you will. And, and I want to invite you during this time of invitation, that's what that means, I want to invite you to respond to what God's Word and God's Spirit through His Word has been teaching. That what God has for us, there's going to be something. There's stuff there every time. And maybe you need to come up here and pray or pray in the corner. Or maybe you need to stop where you are and pray and, and, and listen to God and see what he has for you. Maybe you need to grab the arm of someone near you and pray together with them. Or, or maybe what more than anything else, the Spirit is going to lead you to sing the song that we've chosen this morning. Uh, I, I pray for you that, and for all of us that will be listening and hearing what he has for us. Maybe you've been through our welcome home process. You talk to Lance and others and you're ready to come and join our dysfunctional family. You realize that's another part of the Christian walk that you need. It's a step out in faith in that way, whatever it is. I want to read to us uh, all from Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God, and without faith it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir to the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was 
called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of that same promise. For he was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them, and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. The very words of God. 